Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Well, good morning, church family. Hope you're all doing well this morning. Turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, that's where we are this morning. As you can probably see, or you probably know, we're getting closer and closer to the end of the book of Mark, closer and closer to um, the central point, right? Jesus' crucifixion and his, his rising from the dead three days later. So we're getting closer and closer to that moment in this story. So Mark 14, uh, go to verse 53. I'll read there in a moment. But if, if you know your early 20th century church history at all, you probably have heard the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may have heard his name before. Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor and theologian in the 1930s and 40s. So not a great time to be a pastor there in Germany. Um, but if you know anything about him, you know he was a member of an anti-Nazi group, an anti-Nazi party. He was a founding member of an evangelical church network there in Germany as well. Um, and if you know anything about Bonhoeffer as well, you probably know he was hanged at the age of 39 in 1945. And he wrote, he wrote multiple books, but probably he's most well-known for one of his, really his, it's a classic called The Cost of Discipleship, which just hearing the title, you can probably tell he was more than qualified to write a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in his book, he, he said this. He says that costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, but it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it is costly because it, co- because it costs God the life of his Son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. And I, I think this quote it really well encapsulates what we're going to be looking at this morning in the Gospel of Mark. The story of Jesus' trial and at the same time, Peter's denial of Christ. And discipleship following Jesus is amazing because there we find grace and joy and the only true life that we can ever really find because of what Jesus has done for us. But we have to recognize that there's a cost to that as well. There's a call for us to give up our lives as we follow our Savior. And so that is what Mark is drawing our attention to this morning. That's what he's pointing us to, to consider Jesus' willingness to suffer for you and your willingness to follow him. Consider Jesus' willingness to suffer for you and yours to follow him. So look at Mark chapter 14, verse 53. We will read to the end of the chapter. Mark says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, 
but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against them, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So at the outset, at the beginning of this passage, I want us to recognize what Mark is doing literarily with, with his writing. So look again at verse 53. I think Mark wants us to pick up on something here. Look at verse 53. He says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So first, Mark begins by introducing Jesus' story here in this passage. The men who seized Jesus, who took him away in the Garden of Gethsemane, they bring him to the house of, this, of the high priest, of this man named Caiaphas. And so all the chief priests, the elders, the scribes are all there. Pretty much everyone who wanted Jesus dead. They're all there for this trial. So Mark sets that first scene for us. But now look at the next verse. He doesn't continue with Jesus' story. In verse 54 he says, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So now Mark introduces the second story in the scenario. Peter's story and Peter is following at a distance, right? Because he fled, he fled and ran away with the other disciples when Jesus was arrested. But clearly, Peter hung out maybe around the corner, you know, behind a bush or something, so he could follow and see what would happen. But we know that Peter didn't have any real intention of, of stepping in, of helping the situation, of really participating in any helpful way. He seems to just be curious about what's going to happen to Jesus. So he's just hanging out outside around this fire with some of the servants and the guards, just curiously waiting and seeing what's going to happen to Jesus. So Mark kind of begins by setting those two scenes in parallel with one another. And he's going to go on and fully flesh out Jesus' story and then fully flesh out Peter's story throughout the rest of the passage. But the way he begins, it calls our attention to compare them, to see these as parallel stories going on at the same time, that there is a, a juxtaposition taking place between the stories of Jesus and Peter. 
It's like a, like a movie when it intercuts back and forth between two scenes, kind of to, sh- to highlight the differences in what's going on. So let's look, let's compare what's going on with the story of Jesus and Peter. And let's first look at Jesus' trial. Look at verse 55 again. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they uh, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. So Jesus has been in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, sweating drops of blood, agonizing over the suffering that he knows he's about to face at the cross, and then he's completely abandoned, right? All of his followers, his friends, they've all taken off, they've all left him, and now Jesus is in this room alone with the scribes, the elders, and the priests. Again, all, all the people that pretty much wanted to see Jesus dead. And as we see, right, there's no concern for a fair trial here, right? They all had the same intention, the same motive. They wanted to see Jesus put to death. There's no concern for a due process that's going to take place for a fair trial, anything like that, right? The whole council has already made up their mind that they are going to kill this guy, Jesus. And they're going to, at this point, do whatever it takes to get there. So let's read on, verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. So these guys can't even get their story straight, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of comical because they all have the same intention, right? The same motive. They all just want to see Jesus dead, but they can't even get on the same page about how they're going to do it, right? They can't even get their stories straight about how they're going to accuse him. And so they're all just standing up. They're just saying completely contradictory things. They can't even agree. And so they falsely say that Jesus said he would destroy the temple, which, I mean, we know Jesus did say the temple would be destroyed, but he never said that he was going to be the one to do it himself. It's almost like they're twisting Jesus' words to make him out to be some sort of religious extremist who's come to destroy their ways of life in this, this way that he never actually intended. So they're twisting Jesus' words. And even, even about that, Mark says, they can't agree. Right? They're not finding any agreement. They're all just kind of throwing things out there, seeing what's going to stick, and they're just kind of tripping themselves up in the whole process. And so I hope like in these first few verses, we kind of get the impression of just how ridiculous this trial actually is, right? It's totally illegitimate. Jesus is just standing there all by himself, being falsely accused, facing death ahead of him. And so in the midst of all this, let's not forget why he's doing this, right? Because he's doing this for us. He's doing this for you and me. As the author of Hebrews says, right now we are looking at Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus despised. He thought little of this trial. He thought little about his sufferings because he considered the joy at the end of the whole process. The joy of our salvation. The joy of redeeming us to the Father. He sees that joy at the end of this and he's just not thinking anything even about the suffering that he's going through. Let's keep that perspective in mind that he is going through this for our own sake. So let's keep reading. Verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, 
Are you the Christ, Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So now Caiaphas, the high priest, he, right, he directly addresses Jesus with this question. Jesus is silent at the first question, but then when he actually asks Christ about his identity, he gives an answer. He says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So Caiaphas is asking, is Jesus the Messiah? So that, that name, Christ, that term we use, it's, it's not Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. It's, it's a term, it's a title that carries all this weight from the Old Testament about this promised Savior who would come and fulfill all of these promises we see throughout the Scriptures. That there would be a Savior who would come to God's people and crush the head of the serpent. There would be a king from the line of Judah, a king from the family of David, someone from the family of Abraham who would bless all the nations, right? We get all of these promises throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, pointing forward. And so there's this, this messianic, this expectation of a Christ who would come. And so that's what they're asking Jesus. Are you that person? And I think, interestingly, interestingly Caiaphas shows he actually knows his Old Testament pretty well because he understands this expectation that the Messiah, the Christ, is also going to be the Son of God. That's what he asks him. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of God? He gets that, he gets that connection that's made in the Old Testament, for example, in, in Psalm 2. He gets, I think that's interesting, right? Because Caiaphas gets the promises. He gets what he should be looking for, yet somehow he's missing the fulfillment right in front of him, right? He's missing the one who's fulfilling all those promises right there in front of him. He knows everything he should, but somehow Jesus is right there talking to him, and he's just completely missing it. And I think we can often be like this too, church family. We can know the right things, say the right things, believe the right things, and we can say we are all about Jesus, we're all about the gospel, that's the most important thing, but like the high priest, maybe, we can get caught up in a crowd. We can get swayed by popular opinions or we can get caught up by distractions. You know, perhaps if Caiaphas or any of the other men who were there, the priests, the scribes, the elders, if they actually just took a minute and stopped and really considered what Jesus was teaching, they considered his life and his ministry, maybe they would have seen, oh, this, this guy actually is the promised Messiah. But they were all swayed by this collective frenzy of frustration and anger about what Jesus had to say. And similarly, I think we can get so worked up and distracted by things that really don't matter, about controversies or opinions or issues that are so non-essential to our Christian faith, that don't have any real significance to our relationship with God the Father, and that can kind of become a defining thing about our character when people look at us. We can get so worked up about bad things that happen as a result of living in a broken world, because bad things happen in a broken world. And we can get so focused on these other things that maybe we miss how God's grace is so clearly working right in front of us in our lives. We can maybe miss what he's doing in our lives or in the lives of the people around us so clearly and what he wants us to actually see, but we're too caught up with other things. And so let's not be that kind of people. Let's not be a people who is known for that, that type of frustration or focus on these minor issues or other issues, but let's be a people who's known for our joy and our love for God our faith in Jesus, and our desire to make him known to the people around us. I think Jesus' response to Caiaphas 
is also an awesome reminder of who he is. Just look at verse 62 again. Jesus says, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God, the Son of the Blessed. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, I am the Christ, and you're going to see that. You're going to see my power. And Jesus reminds us that he is the Son of Man. He is this person that way back in the book of Daniel, Daniel had this vision about. He says that at night he had this vision about one called the Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days and it was presented to him all glory and power and dominion over all nations. Daniel had this vision of this, this Son of Man and Jesus is saying, that's me and you are going to see that. You're going to see that, Caiaphas. And I think again, this statement is just a reminder to us that Jesus is walking this path to the cross willingly. He's not being forced to do it. He, it's not against his desires. He is sovereign and he is Lord and totally in control of the situation, but he is willingly going through this suffering for us. He's willingly walking this path to the cross for you and for me. So look at verse 63. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So Jesus is falsely accused of blasphemy, right? The one that they are actually blaspheming against is himself accused of it. Accused of it. Jesus, God's promised Savior, his own son, is being spit on. His face is being covered. You know, they're pulling something over his face. They're beating him. Jesus is beaten by the scribes, the elders, the priests, the very men of Israel who should have actually recognized who he was. And then they give him over to the guards who are going to bring him over to Pilate, and they also take him away beating him. Sad, I mean, a sad picture of the suffering that Jesus is going through for our sake. And I think the phrase that strikes me most here in this passage is at the end of verse 64, where it says, they all condemned him as deserving death. So that was, that was the final verdict of this trial, right? That was the final decision this court came to, that Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, was deserving of death. And so they send him away to be beaten and then crucified on a cross for that, right? And we, we know Jesus wasn't guilty. He didn't actually deserve death. We see from Scripture that, in fact, it's the other way around, right? There is truly anyone who is condemned as deserving death. It's you and me. It's us. It's the whole world. It's everyone who has inherited a sinful nature and then have chosen to sin against a holy and righteous God. And that is every single one of us in this room. We are all truly the ones who are deserving of death and separation from God. But not Jesus, right? Not Him. He's the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. But being the Lamb of God, He had a purpose. To take away the sins of the world. And so this is the gospel message, that we deserving death don't have to die in our sins because Jesus, who didn't deserve death, died for us. He walked this path of suffering. He died on a cross for you and for me. He took our sin on himself and paid that price we deserved to pay. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made, him, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, 
through Jesus' death, death on a cross, God offers you and I this, this great, wonderful exchange. Our sin, your sin, for Christ's righteousness. A pretty good deal. A pretty good deal. And the innocent, spotless Lamb of God was condemned to die so you and I don't have to. The, uh, the prophet Isaiah himself really well spoke about these moments in Jesus' life. And he said this, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as, from one, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and a sheep being taken away before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. So not long after our story here, Jesus taken away and beaten, and then eventually goes to the cross where he's going to die for us. But we know the gospel message doesn't end there. Amen? I mean, right? Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. And this isn't just an incredibly touching rich and moving story, although it is. It's not just a story for us to reminisce about, for us to, to say, isn't that neat? Isn't that cool? The gospel, the salvation that God offers you and I, it's a gift to be received by faith. And that offer is on the table. It's on the table for you this morning if you've never received it. You've never actually taken that step of receiving the gospel or you just have any questions about what that means, man, don't, don't hesitate talk to someone. Don't let another moment go by. You haven't asked that question. So ask someone here this morning. And so, family, with, with the gospel in clear view, with that in the back of our minds, let's read on. Let's look at Peter's story now and his denial of Jesus. I'm going to read the whole rest of the story. Verse 66 again. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So most of us probably, probably know this story pretty well. We've heard it a few times. And just a couple weeks ago, we actually looked at Peter's declaration that this was never going to happen. Back in verse 29 of Mark 14, um, Peter says, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Right? And then in response, Jesus says, no, you will. He says, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And that's kind of an interesting distinctive about Mark. Maybe that threw you off that he says the rooster crowed twice, whereas the other Gospels just say once. Um, and, you know, after Peter's first denial of Jesus, sure enough, Mark says a rooster crowed. And it's almost like a warning shot goes off to Peter. Hey, Pay attention. You see what's happening. It's, it's happening. You're, you're doing exactly what you said you would never do, Peter. But again and again, Peter denies Jesus three times, right? 
And like we said earlier, the way Mark has presented this story is to see that Peter's denial is happening at the very same moment of Jesus' trial, and to compare these stories, to see them going on in parallel, as the moment, at the same moment that the Son of God is being falsely accused and mocked and beaten, Peter is standing right outside just washing his hands of the whole situation, saying he has nothing to do with it. And we know that, you know, throughout the book of Mark and the other Gospels, rarely do we see the, the apostles doing something good, right? We rarely see the apostles in a very good light. Over and over, they're, they're messing up, they're saying the wrong things, putting their foot in the mouth, completely misunderstanding what Jesus is trying to say. We see that happen quite often. But in, in the book of Mark especially, there's one real high point in the book. Flip over to Mark chapter 8. Flip over to Mark 8 in, in the Bible and look at verse 27. So, in Mark 8, right, there's 16 chapters in Mark, so it's like right in the middle of the book pretty much. Jesus and the disciples are walking to this town of Caesarea Philippi, and this is what happens. Look in verse 27. You're still flipping there. <laughs> it says in Mark 8:27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. So, man, right there at that moment, Peter hit the nail on the head, right? He got it right. And like I said, that's right in the middle of the book of Mark, and it's a really pivotal moment. And you can kind of see the way Jesus' ministry shifts to really focus on his coming death on the cross. And Peter was right there at that moment with the answer that you are the Christ, the Messiah. And now in this moment, in Mark, back in chapter 14, Jesus is in the home of the high priest, right? And what are they asking him? Are you the Christ? Are you really the Savior? And Jesus answers in the affirmative, yes, that is me, I am the Christ. And so they begin to beat him, spit on him, and mock him. And so do you see what's going on here? Did you see what's happening? Jesus is inside this house, surrounded by men that want to kill him, being questioned and accused and mocked about his identity as the Christ, the Messiah. And Peter, the guy who once proclaimed that very same truth, who once affirmed that very same reality that Jesus is the Christ, he's right outside saying, I don't even know who this guy is. I don't even know who you're talking about. So do you see the sad irony there in Peter's story here? And family, I think this passage is really a clear mirror for us to look at ourselves with and ask ourselves some tough questions about our own commitment to Jesus, our own discipleship with Christ. I mean, just look at the questions that the people asked Peter or the statements they made to him. They say, uh, you, were, you, you were with the Nazarene Jesus. This man is one of them, or uh, certainly you are one of them. So those are the statements they make to Peter, but I mean, first and foremost, do you get asked those sort of questions? Do you get those statements made about you by unbelieving family or friends or coworkers or neighbors or just acquaintances? Do people who know you actually know that you follow Jesus? Would unbelievers make those statements about you? Would they recognize you as someone who is one of them, like this lady said to Peter? Or would you be recognized as someone who has been with Jesus? I think that's the first question, a first fair question we need to ask ourselves. 
is just the people see Jesus in us. The people see Christ reflected in our lives. You know, as a disciple, a follower of Jesus is my life a reflection of who he is to the people around me. And Because how can we expect to make disciples if people don't actually know that we're disciples ourselves? Or are you living in a way that shows Jesus to those around you? I think we can ask ourselves as well, are the, the truths, the realities that we say we believe in church actually impacting the rest of our lives? Is our faith in Jesus really making a difference when we walk out those doors? Is the things we say we believe on Sunday changing anything on Monday to Saturday? Because it should, right? It should. Can others see how the truth you believe is being lived out? And lastly, if and hopefully when you are pointed out as a Christian, right? If there are unbelievers in your life or people that recognize you as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, maybe they ask you about that, what's your response? How do you respond? I think that's a pretty fair question we can ask ourselves from this passage. I mean, first of all, straight up, do we just deny it? I hope not. If, when people at work go, hey, aren't you a Christian? What do you say? When people say, hey, aren't all Christians just X, Y, or Z, you know, hateful, or this, or that, or don't all Christians think this or that, or if you're a Christian, what do you think about this? Right? Those aren't always the most fun questions to receive, but what do you say? What's your response to that? I mean, are you, do you get excited about a chance to talk about Jesus to someone who doesn't know him? Or do you go, yeah, well, I, I go to church sometimes, and I guess I'm a Christian. You, know, like, you kind of cringe with embarrassment when you're asked about Jesus. You know, you don't have to have the, all the answers, but you can just say, yeah, I, I love Jesus. Yes, I go to church. I don't have all the answers, but can we talk about him? Do you find joy in identifying with your Savior? Because he finds joy in identifying with you. And he went to the cross gladly and joyfully for your and my sake. And we know the cost of discipleship is high, right? Jesus said we would be rejected by this world. He said we need to take up our own cross and follow him. And we need to count that cost, right? That's, a, that's something we need to take into consideration when following Jesus. But we see, like in a passage here, that failure to follow Jesus is even worse. Right? Peter, after he denies Jesus three times, he remembers Christ's word, words that he would deny him. And so he, he runs off weeping and crying, knowing that he is complicit, complicit in Christ's crucifixion, that he rejected the Messiah, the very same one who he confessed only uh, a little bit earlier, knowing that he failed. And I know this last week I've I've reflected on some of my own failures in following Jesus, and maybe, you know, you're having some of those same thoughts now. The Holy Spirit's maybe speaking to you in that way, but while we do need to ask these questions of ourselves, and I think that's a fair thing to do based on this passage, don't be crushed by the weight of your failure and your sin, because we know that Jesus is going to the cross to pay for that. And even more so, there's a beautiful thread in the story of Peter that we see, right? Um, one of the statements, look at one of the statements made about him in verse 67. This girl says to Peter, you were with Jesus. You were with the Nazarene Jesus. And Peter denies that. But later on, right after the crucifixion, after Jesus rises from the dead, Peter is actually restored to ministry when Jesus asks him, do you love me? Three times. He restores Peter to his ministry. And then we actually know Peter goes on and starts the early and helps establish the early church there in the book of Acts. 
And actually, in the book of Acts, we find a pretty similar statement made about Peter that this girl made here in Mark. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and, and John as well, they go before this council, and it's the very same council that Jesus himself went before in our passage. Caiaphas, the high priest, and the other elders and scribes there. They go before this council, and in fact, um, this is what they notice about Peter and John. You don't have to turn there, but this is in Acts 4. It says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And if you know the story here in Acts, Peter doesn't deny Christ this time. And in fact, he, he takes this opportunity to boldly proclaim Jesus to the very people who sent Jesus to the cross only a couple months earlier. I mean, isn't that a cool picture of the transformation that God works in our lives? Right? Again and again, denial after denial, failure after failure, God loves to restore us. Right? We have a God who loves to pick us back up, who does not give up on us. His grace keeps on pursuing us. And so... Be encouraged by that this morning. And while the cost of discipleship is real, knowing and following Jesus is far better than anything this world can offer. We know the spotless Lamb of God was condemned to die, so we don't have to. And he invites us into a joyful, life-giving relationship with the Father. And although Jesus never said it would be easy, he did say it would be worth it. And so like we said at the beginning, Mark so clearly is placing these stories together And in doing that, we just see how faithful Jesus really is, that he is walking this path willingly for you and I to pay for our sins on the cross. He boldly and calmly suffered and died for you and me. And as we also look at Peter's denial, maybe we see a little bit of ourselves and our own failure there. And so maybe the Holy Spirit is pointing you inward and asking yourself to look at and consider your own commitment to Jesus. Mark is asking us this morning to consider Jesus' willingness to suffer for you and your willingness to follow him. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this passage of Scripture, this story about Jesus going to the cross for us and our sake. Thank you that even when we do fail like Peter, even when we see ourselves in this story, we see our own failure, we see our sin. Thank you that you are a God who picks us up again and again and restores us with your grace. I pray that we would not lose sight of that, that we'd be encouraged by that, and that we would also be willing to look inward and ask ourselves the tough questions about our own commitment to Christ this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.